Okay, so this is uh, Bible Boot Camp uh, edition number two. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, last week we did Old Testament. Uh, that audio is going to be up uh, on the website if you missed it and want to want to catch it. Uh, and then this week is New Testament, and then we'll take two weeks off, and we'll we'll do our third installment is how to read the Bible, and that's that's more about like how to use commentary, how to get more out of the Bible when you read it. And then the fourth is going to be how to teach the Bible, uh, which, you know, even if you don't really want to be a teacher or anything like that, we still think it would be valuable for you so that you're ready. You know, you're ready, ready to go if you're ever called into battle. Um, but, uh, but anyhow, so just a couple of, some of this is going to be a little re- repetitive for those of you who are here. Oh, you can't hear me? Yeah, that's probably the first time in my life anyone's told me they couldn't hear me. Um, okay. Okay, so if I'm not talking loud enough, then if you guys in the back just do this, yeah, just do a little turn it up, turn it up, big C. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so uh, so I'm going to do a little bit of review. Some of this is going to be redundant for those of you who were here last week, but just to again set the stage, Bible Boot Camp is uh, is uh, kind of came to light because of I started to see that a lot of people uh, they they didn't they were intimidated by the Bible because they didn't necessarily know the context of the Bible or they'd never been taught how to read the Bible and so on and so forth. And so that's what Bible Boot Camp came out of, and it, and it was kind of birthed on a, a trip up to special session up at Camp McDowell between Jay Garner and myself. And, um, and so an, another thing, too, is last summer I went to a movie. Uh, I totally forgotten the title of the movie. <laughs> I remembered it last week. But um, I think it was a, a Most Wanted Man, a Most Dangerous Man. Anyhow, Philip Seymour Hoffman, it was his last, his movie. Last movie, and uh, at the beginning... He's um, the beginning. I, 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 almost, I missed all the previews and walked in just the beginning. And there was this, uh, these two sentences that kind of talked about the context of the movie. Talked about how Hamburg, Germany, was kind of a hotbed for terrorist planning and organization. How 9/11 was planned out of uh, out of Hamburg. A lot of it was, and how it was it was kind of an international hub for counterintelligence. And if you didn't know that about the movie, you just would not have understood it at all. And, uh, and so I just started to think, if you, if you don't know context in the Bible, it's not going to mean much to you. And so, uh, so that was kind of what set the stage for, um, for, you know, for the, what we're doing these first two weeks, is understanding the context of the Bible. Um, a, a second thing, too, is uh, Gerald Bray, he's a professor at Beeson, uh, he talked about how when you teach the Bible... Uh, for a person to understand the meaning, they need to know where the Bible story fits in the broader context of all of Scripture, where it fits in the immediate historic context, and where it fits today, how it applies today. All three of those need to be hit. And, um, and, and so that's kind of the structure of this whole Bible boot camp. The first two weeks are the broader context, how we know the Bible in the broader context, which, obviously, this is not exhaustive, right? There's a book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. It's only about 100 pages, and it does, in 100 pages, what I did uh, much, much better, much probably. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, Vaughn Roberts, he's actually Anglican, one of us. And, uh, and so, um, we're doing okay? Okay, good. Um, okay, so then, and then as far as understanding it in, a, in a, a, the Bible in its immediate context, that's what commentary is there for. Because none, none of us studied ancient Near Eastern literature or, or, or history. None of us are experts on, uh, I don't think at least, none of us are experts on you know, Palestine in the first century. And so that's why we need commentary to understand it in the historical context. So, so anyhow, so that's a little bit of background. So first off... Um, why, why read the Bible? Like, why does it matter? Why is it a big deal? And, you know, first, because Jesus believed that it was the authoritative word of God. Jesus had an incredibly high view of Scripture. Um, he, he believed it was infallible. He believed it was inerrant. He believed that every, every letter of what was written was from God. That's uh, Matthew 5. He called it the word of God. He taught from the word of God. He cited the word of God over 60 times. And, you know, his, his first real ministerial act when he uh, teaches in the temple, he pulls out Isaiah and starts teaching from the scroll. So that's the first reason. Second reason, it will change your life. The Bible, it's a, a self-attestation is it is living and active. It is a sword, a double-edged sword. 
and it, it has, and it, it will sanctify us. Jesus says, sanctify them with your truth, and your word is truth. That's John 17. And so it will change our life. Second, it's the, it's the only way we know anything about God. None of us ever met Jesus. Uh, we can know some basic things about God through creation, but specific things about God's character, about salvation, about um, you know, how the Lord feels about us, about our human nature. Really, everything we know about God for us as 21st century people comes from the Bible. So that's, that's another thing. A fourth thing is it's a means of grace, three means of grace, prayer, the sacraments, and scripture. We need all the grace we can get, right? So let's consume that Bible. And then fifth, um, I didn't really, I, I should have said this, um, I should have said this, and this is very important, is that it is a supreme means of relational connection with God. When we read the Bible, um, you know, it's not just, it's not like we're reading a textbook. The reading the Bible is meant to be relational interaction with God. Word and Spirit, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit always accompany one another. You see that thread throughout Acts. And so when we sit down, we won't, don't just want to think about it as learning, intellectually learning about God, but we want to see it as relational interaction with God the Father. Um, and so, um, and so that's, a, that's another reason why we read it. Um, characteristics of the Bible, we said last week that it's a narrative. But it's not just a narrative. If you th- you think, think again, remember we said it's a cohesive story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The focus of the Bible is about God redeeming mankind and the cosmos. God reconciling all things that were divorced from him because of original sin and drawing them back into oneness with him. That's the story of the Bible. You know, one and a half pages spent on creation and or one, two chapters on creation and like 1,195 spent on reconciliation between man and God. So it's a narrative, but it's not just a story because it's historical. We believe the things that occurred in the Bible actually happened. Um, furthermore, it's practical. We use it in our life. It helps us to make choices, helps us to make decisions, tells us about our relationships with other people and with God. So it's very practical. And it's also personal because... We are characters in the story. <laughs> when, when God reconciles himself, reconciles us to himself, like we are a part of the kingdom of light, right? And so it's our story too. It's us making sense of where we fit in in the grand scheme of things. And so just a little review there as we got started. So what we're going to do is, um, hmm, I don't want to start here. All right, so... Let's not start here. We're going to skip back to this. Let's go to the next one. Great. Okay. So, you know, last week when we did the Old Testament, uh, it was very historically driven. You know, we kind of looked at these nine segments or, you know, nine chapters, if you will, of redemptive history in the Old Testament, starting with creation to the fall to the, the patriarchs to the exodus to the conquest to the kingdom to the divided kingdom to the exile to the restoration. And so we looked at it historically because the Old Testament covers you know, a couple thousand years. There is a ton of historical span there. The New Testament, uh, you know, we don't, we're not going to look at it quite so much that way because the New Testament is written in a span of about you know, 40, 50 years. And so it's, the, it's pretty much the same context, basically. It's, it's Palestine, and there's diversity within that, but it's not like there are tons of radical historic changes as you see in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at it historically briefly, and then we're going to look at it theologically. And the question is, all right, what are the things that you need to know contextually about the New Testament so that you can read any book of the Bible with confidence? All right, and so we're going to look real quickly at just the historic story. Um, so in your, in your Bible boot camp uh, packet, if, you, if this is your first week, we have a, a full packet for you, and we also have... Uh, we have, for those of you who are coming back from last week and have your packet, we have a new packet, categories for reading the New Testament. Um, but we're just going to look at the basic historic story here of what's going on in the New Testament. It is unbelievable just how many significant world-changing things happen in, in, you know, in a very short period of time in the New Testament. So the first thing, the first kind of part of the New Testament is the incarnation. And Jesus comes. The long-expected Messiah is born of a virgin, fully human, fully man. And so, um, and so you know, when we, we're talking about the incarnation here, 
we're also talking about the ministry of Jesus, like from his birth, um, you know, to the launching of his ministry, uh, and, you know, leading up to his death. So that's what we, when we're talking about the incarnation, we're including his ministry. And, you know, most of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're focusing on the ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's not a ton of uh, there's not a ton of information about Jesus's childhood. There are a couple of chapters that uh, that are committed to that, but most of it is dedicated to his ministry. And then after the incarnation, the next thing is the crucifixion. And you know you see that this is the focal point of the Gospels, especially Mark. I mean, Mark is the whole time rushing to get to the cross, um, and that's kind of where he's setting up camp. But you know the crucifixion is kind of the next major event in in the New Testament. Uh, and this is, you know, the ultimate sacrifice for atonement of sin uh, for for believers. And so, um, so the crucifixion is the next event. And you know, obviously Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are all, you know, th- this all fall within the, cruci- the incarnation, and the crucifixion. Next thing, <laughs> three days later, resurrection. Right? You know, in the Old Testament, these periods are like. 500 years or a thousand years, Bible three days, and the New Testament three days. Um, so the resurrection is the next major event. Jesus comes from the tomb. He uh, he validates uh, validates that his uh, that he is God, that his claim to have power over sin and death that it's true, and he does it in the body. He physically, empirically, tangibly proves these things to be true. Um, so the resurrection is the next event. The next event is Pentecost. 40 days later, all right, three days, 40 days. It's all packed in there together. Pentecost, the most underrated thing that happens in the entire Bible. Um, Pentecost is, you know, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down in an incredibly powerful, never-seen-before way. All right, Pentecost, uh, you know, is in, is in Acts 1 and 2, is kind of the lead-up to and the, the story of the Pentecost. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was kind of concentrated in the temple. Now, after the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwells in the hearts of all believers in the same way that it dwelled in such a concentrated fashion in the temple in the Old Testament. And this is huge. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophets, the, you know, when I say prophets, prophets, priests, and kings had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. All believers have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, just like Moses, just like David. So this is a big, big deal that we um, that we kind of underrate and under talk about. Huge deal. But the Pentecost is the next big thing that happens, and it's also such a huge deal because it it sets the stage for the explosion of Christianity and the explosion of the church, because people are going out in the power of the Spirit. They're, you know, testifying that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, that Christ has risen from the dead. He is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed God. And God has been fully revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so the, the Pentecost is kind of the fuel and the fire um, that, uh, boy, I just sounded very Pentecostal, didn't I? It's the fire. No. Um, <laughs> I know my Pentecostal friends will be so proud of me. Um <laughs> But anyhow, it's the fuel in the fire that gives birth to, you know, the explosive expansion of Christianity that's still going on today. Um, all right, so the Pentecost is next. Then the next period is the Church Age, which, um, you know, we're in, we're in right now. But, you know, in particular in the New Testament, all of these letters that are written, well, first off, most of Acts is dedicated to the formation of the early church. Um, you have, uh, you know, the apostles going out, spreading the word, establishing churches, seeing people converted, doing wondrous acts through the power of the Holy Spirit to confirm their, you know, that they're apostles. And, um, and so you see, you know, what we're, a part, what we're doing right now, what we're a part of here and now, talking about God's Word, talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the triune God of grace, this is a part of the church age. Like, we're in the story. Now we see exactly where we fit. This is just a proliferation of what was started with the, you know, with the apostles back in Jerusalem. And so, so that's where we are. And, and so a lot the, the Acts and then all of the, all of the epistles, which that means letters, so letters to different churches, so like Corinthians is to the church at Corinth and Ephesians to the church at Ephesus and uh, you know, Galatians to the church at Galatia. All, these are all a part of the church age. This is building up 
and setting the, setting the church in the right direction in Christ. And then the last, the last uh, chapter is the second coming of Christ. And you see that Revelation is primarily dedicated to this topic. Um, and this is, you know, this is what the whole Bible is leading up to. It's all leading up to Revelation uh, 20, 21, 22, where Jesus returns. He rids the world of all evil, everything that is broken. He makes everything right. And heaven and earth are merged and everything is perfect. Let's get excited. Hey, Jesus, how about tonight, right? Um, so anyhow, that's not to say that all information about the second coming of Christ is confined to Revelation. Uh, it's, in, it's all throughout the New Testament, especially the letters. There's a lot of content, and in the Gospels as well. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of the, the next chapter. So we are uh, in between the resurrection and the second coming, and we're a part of the church age right now. And, you know, we are... The, the second coming will occur when every people group in the world has had the opportunity to hear the gospel and establish a church, and that, that is when the work will be done and Christ will return. So spread the word. Speed this thing up. All right, so that's the basic, that's the basic historic narrative of the New Testament. Um, as far as where the books fit in, it's not real hard. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, that is primarily concentrated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and we'll, we're going to talk more specifically about those books in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, the, the, that's where those, that section of, of uh, the New Testament history is confined. Next is Pentecost in the church. And Pentecost is, like I said, talked about in Acts 1 and 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, the church age is you know, pretty much everything after that, all the letters. Uh, from Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, so on and so forth. So that would fit into the church age. And, and don't worry, we're going to go through each one of the books and just give a little snapshot. And then finally, the second coming in the new creation, that is in Revelation. And so that's where everything fits in historically. Now, um, you can see that's, uh, you know, we went through the whole history of the New Testament. That, that's like a, you know, a 10-minute overview. Now, I think in terms of being able to read the New Testament effectively, it's more helpful to understand um, some of the theological trends in the New Testament and, uh, and some of the trends related to the church. And so, oh, actually, I, I skipped that one part, fulfillment of the Old Testament. So, sorry, let's go back a little bit. My fault. There we are. Okay. So one thing we need to think about is we need to think about this transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is going to be pitifully synopsized because <laughs> this, these are all very big deal, broad things. But, you know, one of the big concentrations of the New Testament is helping particularly Jewish Christians understand the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, because this is a huge transition. There's continuity. There's definite continuity from Old Testament to New Testament, like crazy. And it's different. There are new things. And so a huge part of what you see written about is, is segueing Old Testament theology, belief, worship to the New Testament. And so, for example, you have the New Covenant. You have these Old Covenants of the, of the Old Testament, particularly the Old Covenant itself, the sacrificial system as the way for forgiveness of sins. And you know, going now we have the New Covenant, where Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Lamb, the Lamb of God, all capital letters. And so think about it. The Jews were used to forgiveness of sins being something that happened at the temple by sacrifice of animals and through faith in God and, and true repentance. And now it's through faith in Christ. One sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So that's a, that's a huge transition, this idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Huge part of the New Testament is dedicated to that. A second one is understanding Jesus as the Messiah and his kingdom as the ultimate kingdom. So Messiah means anointed one, and it's, it's basically another word for a king. And so, you know, the Jews were expecting... Uh, a new David, a new great 
human king to come who would liberate Israel from Roman oppression and would bring Israel back to, uh, to be a, you know, a superpower, as they were in the days of David. And, and there's talk of this kingdom and this Messiah throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, and with the Davidic covenant in, uh, in 2 Samuel. You have it in Isaiah, this talk of a, of a kingdom and a king. And then in Daniel, you talk, there's this Messiah who's cut off for atonement of sins. And so a lot of the New Testament is making this transition that Jesus, this suffering servant, He's the king. Like he is the king, and his kingdom is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual kingdom, and Christ is now the king, reigning um, over all the cosmos from heaven. And and so this transition of helping people understand this new kingdom is a huge transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, another another transition we don't think about a whole lot is the the transition to the wisdom of Christ, or the transition to the wisdom literature. Uh, so, you know, we talked last week about wisdom literature of the Old Testament being like Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, um, and Job. Those are some examples of, of like wisdom literature. And now Christ is, is the wisdom of God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And you, you have wisdom literature in the New Testament. James and uh, 1 John and some would, would classify that as wisdom literature. It's the same similar kind of uh, genre and literary style. Um, but anyhow, but there's this transition where Christ himself is the ultimate wisdom. Uh, another transition is the transition from the temple of God and, and true worship. So think about this. The Jews were used to worshiping in the temple, and now the, the temple's gone. <laughs> and not, not for all of the writing of the, old, of the New Testament for some, um, but there's no longer where do the high priests fit in who used to lead worship, used to pray on behalf of the people, like, uh, what about the temple? What about sacrifices? And, and so there's this big transition where, uh, you know, we, we worship Christ in spirit and truth. Uh, the, you know, the, spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is no longer a temple. It's, it indwells in all believers. Um, and, and so, and you know, the people of God are no longer Israel. Uh, the people of God are anyone who is in Christ. It, it goes from not just Jews, but it's extended to Gentiles as well, to all the world. So, again, huge transition. Um, by the way, am I going too fast? We doing okay? Questions? Yeah, so far? Okay. Um, I know, we're fire hosing, so I just want to make sure I'm not running off the, <laughs> running off the rails. Um, okay, the, the last is uh, the end of days or eschatology. Eschatology is just the study of the end of the world. Um, and, and so, you know, the Old Testament, the, you know, eschatology is kind of murky. I mean, there's clearly an afterlife. Uh, there's clearly, there seems to be, it's kind of ambiguous, but there seems to be like, you know, a good afterlife and a bad afterlife, but there's not a ton of, ton of definition. And furthermore, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, you see these two comings of the Messiah, one where he seems to be coming like a warrior, and one where he seems to be coming as this suffering servant, like in Isaiah 52 and 53, and in uh, Daniel 7 and 9. And, um, and, and so with Jesus, there is great clarity now. There's great clarity on, on, on uh, you know, the first and, there's a first and second coming. Him coming as a warrior is his second coming. Him coming as a suffering servant is his first coming. And, you know, so there's a lot more clarity. And there's also more detail on heaven and hell. You know, we just really don't know much about the afterlife in terms of detail um, in the Old Testament. But we, I mean, most of what we know about hell theologically comes straight out of the mouth of Jesus and, and comes out of Revelation. And, and same thing with heaven, too. Um, we have a lot of content on heaven, uh, particularly in, in Revelation and, and some of the letters. But, uh, but anyhow, so there's that. And then finally, the prophets. Um, you know, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Uh, all of the prophecy of the Old Testament, all the history is all leading up to Jesus who is the ultimate teacher, the ultimate proclaimer of truth, the ultimate voice of God, because he's God himself. And so, you know, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so, so Jesus, again, kind of fulfills the, the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. So these are some huge transitions um, that we see occur. All right, now for the fun part. Move up to Greg. And perfect. Thank you very much. Okay, now, um, I think a lot, I mean, that, I think all that stuff is very important and it's helpful. 
Um, I think uh, in terms of stuff that we may not know as much about, uh, these are some more helpful categories uh, to help us understand the New Testament. And one thing we've got to understand uh, first is, you know, there are two audiences that Jesus is, uh, that Jesus is teaching to primarily. Uh, or not Jesus, sorry, the New Testament writers are writing to, my fault. Um, they're writing to Jews, in particular, in particular Jewish Christians, um, and they're writing to Gentiles. And, and this is a very diverse uh, world uh, that the New Testament is written in. Because you have, uh, you know, you have a Roman world, but you also have the strong influence of Greek thought. You can see in the book of Acts, there are all kinds of ethnicities that are mentioned in the book of Acts. And so it's a pluralistic, diverse society. And uh, so we have to kind of understand that coming into it. And so with that being said, these writers, you know, the Christianity is it's like radically new. I mean, in, in some ways, to like to, to the old in terms for, for Jewish people, it's not as radical, but it is still a huge transition. Um, I mean, think about think about your whole life. You've uh, you've observed dietary laws. You've gone to the temple for sacrifice. Um, you've had these Sabbath rituals that you observe, and now they're all thrown out the door. Uh, you know, or they, they're kind of replaced and consummated in Christ. Um, and then if you're a Gentile, think about you know. Think about what they're hearing. Hey, there was this disenfranchised carpenter who grew up in Judea, and he was one heck of a teacher, and he claimed that he was God. He claimed that he was the chosen one, and he had these big follow this big following, and it all dies off, and he's you know convicted, and he's put on a cross, and you know what? He rises from the dead and there are all these people who saw him crucified who have now seen him risen from the dead and they all swear that he rose from the dead and oh by the way we're saying what we're telling you is this guy is god and he's human and you like you i mean like what he did is the most significant thing that ever happened to you because now you can be in communion with god you can have your sins forgiven you can have a hope of the afterlife. You can be in relationship with the living God, the creator of the world. Okay, that is a very like novel, foreign idea. Uh, you know, I mean, for I mean, for people, especially if you've been raised in the South, uh, is you know, we kind of we kind of forget because you know, kind of like biblical presuppositions and biblical knowledge are kind of so common. Uh, but we've got to think about how radically different this is for the everyday. Uh, you know, Roman citizen, uh, Gentile walking around, you know, Philippi. <laughs> so, so anyhow, so with that being said, here are some of the, the theological categories that you see or trends you see over and over again in the Gospels and Acts, the letters and Revelation. Um, the first is an explanation of the Gospel. Um, you know, just you see it over and over again. What what is this good news? The, you know, gospel is um, gospel is an announcement of good news. Back in that time, it was used. To, uh, you know, ter the terminology was used in the political and military context. Uh, it was an announcement that one team had won a battle, or one side had won a battle, or it's an announcement that someone had won a political election. They had risen to a new office. So you know, the gospel is this good news announcement that Jesus has defeated sin and death in battle through his life, death, and resurrection. And, uh, and now he is king. He's risen to that office. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. But it's an expl explanation and clarification on the gospel. Uh, and by the way, we're going to go through and kind of see how, this, how, this, how each book, we see these trends pop up. Um, next, it's instruction in the Christian life. Uh, the people needed clarity on what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, especially after he ascended. Um, and so, you know, for, the, for a lot of these people, this is a very, very different moral code. I mean, especially think about like the book of Corinthians, you know, the sexual ethics of Christianity were just more radical to the people in the church of Corinth. Um, this idea of, you know, abstinence, um, you know, sex only between a man and a woman, that stuff like that, like that's, this is very new stuff for them. They were, they were struggling with this. Or if you think about uh, the way that women were regarded. Uh, people don't know this, but Christianity was like a, fem a radical feminist movement of the first century. And, this, and I say that in the sense that 
you know, women in that time were had the same rights as slaves. And they had they were completely disenfranchised. They had no rights whatsoever. They were seen as as dogs. And here, uh, the New Testament, even though you know a lot of people want to say it's misogynistic, if you know the historical context, you know that Christianity was radically feministic. A lot of most the majority of the early converts were women because it held up women in such high regard in the Old Testament and the New Testament. To say husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, lay down your life for a woman who is really thought of as a piece of property. So these are all very radical thoughts. Um, so the ethics, the way that people were regarded, um, this idea of all people had dignity and worth, this, these were new ideas in that context. And they, and, they, and they needed help understanding how to faithfully follow Jesus and live like a Christian. Um, next, uh, clarification on Jesus. I mean, I think we can kind of give, give some of the people in the early church a hard time for misunderstanding Jesus. But, you know, we're saying... There is a man who is fully human, but he's also fully God. And we still can't really wrap our hands around that. But there's a, a ton of attention paid to helping people have clarity on Jesus' identity, on his nature, on exactly who he was. Because that was very, very hard to grasp philosophically and theologically. A next one is the historic and theological implications of Christ coming and, and Pentecost. Uh, you know, like I said, there's a big transition. We have a lot more information on the, on the end of days. And people were, you know, one, one, one eschatological uh, kind of expectation of the Old Testament is the resurrection of the dead. This idea that when the Messiah comes, um, you know, those who were faithfully in God, whose sins had been forgiven, who had been atoned for, they would rise from the ground, come out of the ground, rise from the dead. Uh, with new bodies, and here Jesus has risen from the ground, but where is everybody else, right? And so, um, and so there is there's a lot of kind of clarification of that. Uh, you know, for the Jews, uh, you see like in Romans 9 through 11, you see in, in Hebrews, um, you know, uh, they're they're giving attention to help them understand how do, what does this mean in the big picture, uh, as far as helping us understand uh, how it relates to the end of days and. And two, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, uh, that's, there's a ton of content in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit because you, know, you don't see explicit, explicit language about the Trinity in the Old Testament. You see uh, kind of shadows of it in the Old Testament, especially when you look back. But we're talking, this God, Yahweh, the Old Testament is, is actually a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so, um, and the Spirit now dwells in you. Wait a minute, you should just be in the, Holy, you should just be in the temple. You're saying it's in my heart. And so there are massive eschatological implications for the New Testament. And then finally, correction of heresy. Um, there are just lots and lots of ways the only early church got Christianity wrong. Um, they were kind of adopting, the term you'd use is like syncretism. And syncretism is where you kind of adopt kind of the thoughts or the philosophy or the theology of the world or of a different culture. And you kind of try to blend it in with Christianity. And so there was a lot of that going on. And so a lot of the books are dedicated to correction of heresy. So, for example, Galatians. There was heresy in the church in Galatia. They were saying, uh, there was a group called the Judaizers who were saying, well, faith in Jesus is good, but you also need to follow the dietary laws and the Sabbath rituals too. And so Paul's letter to the church of Galatians say, no, 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 no. You are only justified before God by faith. By, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Okay. Or First John, uh, there was there was kind of bad theology about Jesus not being fully human, not coming in the flesh. And John is subtly trying to say, to, and that was kind of a Gnostic idea. It's a Greek philosophy. And John is trying to say, no, 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 no. He was he was the real deal. Like I ate meals with him, and I saw him digest food. I touched him. I witnessed him. I heard him. That's the beginning of First John is the one that we touched, the one that we saw, the one that we witnessed, the one that we heard. Um, and so, um, so that's an example of how you see like correction of heresy. So, so those are theological categories. Now, another set of categories that you see is categories related to the church. Because you have a little bit of a precedent of, uh, you know, of the church and, and like the local synagogues after the exile. Um, there were kind of local small temples um, and, and, and communities throughout uh, the ancient Near East. 
And, uh, and so there was kind of a precedent for the church. But, you know, there's, in terms of like the leadership of the church and the governance of the church and the theology of the church, uh, these are all new things. And so, um, and so, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of content about the church itself. And so some, of the, some examples of content related to the early church are one, uh, persecution and suffering. Huge theme, huge theme in the New Testament uh, because early Christians were persecuted intensely, intensely um, in, you know, in, the, in the first century. Uh, you, know, you see so many, so many of the letters are encouragement to tell these guys, hold on, hang on. Uh, you know, the, you know the, the, the world did not love Jesus. The world hated Jesus. The world arrested and crucified Jesus. If it didn't love Jesus, it's not going to love you. This is not, you know, they're, kinda, he's try, they're trying to set reasonable expectations. And they're giving, you know, talking about the hope, the hope of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the second coming of Christ, the hope of the judgment, of, the judgment and the justice of God. And so, you know, first and second Peter, first and second Thessalonians, James, uh, Revelation, Hebrews, all written to audiences that are suffering. Uh, you see that Second uh, Corinthians and Philippians, written by Paul while he is majorly suffering, um, majorly suffering. So you see, this is a big theme: encouragement in the face of, of persecution. Another theme related to the church is church government and leadership. Uh, in particular, First and Second Timothy and Titus. These books are called pastoral epistles. They're giving them instruction on, you know, all right, this is this is. This is what we need to be doing. We need to be teaching the word, and these are what your leaders need to look like. They need to be people of integrity, and uh, and this is how things need to be organized. And so, uh, they're letters to young pastors who are starting churches, and and so you see that as a, a big theme of the content. And then finally, uh, the theology of the church itself. First uh, Corinthians and Ephesians, in particular, are talking about you know how you have. The visible church, which is like you know the institutional church, like Church of the Advent or the Episcopal Church or whatever it may be, uh, and then you have the invisible church, which is all all people who are in union with Christ. By virtue of their union with Christ, they're in union with one another, and and there's this kind of mystical, mysterious theology of of, of this you know one universally bonded church group of people together. The spiritual bond that runs throughout them. And so you see content on the theology of the church. All right, so what we're going to do next is we're going to go through all the books and give a little bit of a snapshot and maybe see how some of these themes run in it. Questions at this point? Are you as tired as I am at this point? <laughs> oh, man. All right, so... We're probably going to, we're going to operate from this categories for reading the New Testament prepared by, uh, oh, sorry, whoops, I got, we got to do um, the Gospels. We're going to do the, yeah, we're in that packet. We're going to start with the Gospels prepared by our wonderful college interns, Connor and Rebecca. Um, and I'm not going to get into the categories as much in the Gospels because you know, they're, they're, they're all, all of the categories kind of fit into the Gospels. Um, it's about, you know, it is the pronouncement of the Gospel. It is about the Christian life. It is talk about the, you know, eschatology. doesn't talk about the church as much. Um, and there's not as much there. I mean, there is correction of heresy because Jesus is constantly trying to kind of help the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities kind of understand the true message of the Old Testament that we see through Christ. Um, but, but anyhow, just, you know, basically, and, and I'm going to kind of focus more here on the, the purpose and the audience, but Matthew is, is written to, to Jewish people. Um, Jewish Christians, but also Jewish non-Christians, to help them understand Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-awaited King. And you know, he starts with the genealogy, and to say, "Hey, look, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's a descendant of David. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant." And um, and so that's that's the audience, and and that's that's his purpose to help to help Jewish people know Christ as Messiah and Lord and Savior. Um, Gospel of Mark is written to a broader audience, and um, he is he is you know presenting and defending Jesus's call to discipleship. He's presenting Jesus's identity, who Jesus is, 
and you know, and he is really focusing on the crucifixion. He has a ton of content on that as the focal point of his gospel. Um, the gospel, according to Luke, um, is written. Some would most would say primarily to Gentile Christians. Um, and it, for, you know, he he says at the beginning he's writing to an individual named Theophilus, and he says, "I am giving you an orderly account, so that you will know verifiably." that this gospel message that you're hearing, that it is true. So he wants them to know the facts about who Jesus is, what he taught, what he has done, so that they will know that this good news about communion with God through forgiveness of sins through Christ, that it's true. Um, And then the Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels that's written. It's one of the last books of the New Testament written. And all the content from the other Gospels was already out there when John wrote his Gospel. And so uh, John is writing both to Greeks and to Jewish people. And, um, and he, his hope is that people will believe in Christ and have eternal life thereby. He says in, in John 20 at the end, he says, there are, Jesus did so many things that you could, not, you could not, the whole world could not contain a book that was written about all the things that Jesus did. But these have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and you might believe. And John is my favorite gospel um, because you see so much of the, how he's, he's addressing a Jewish audience. But he is so writing this uh, also to a Greek audience because Greeks didn't care about the afterlife. They cared about philosophy and religion for here and now. And so John's gospel has the most content about life, eternal life in Christ in this life, the here and now. So I think that the Gospel of John, I wrote a paper about how it's the most, it's a very, very relevant book for today, especially with young people, because they, they don't, they don't, no one's going to die, right? Every, every, we're going to live forever, and I don't have to worry about that old people stuff. How does this affect me now, right? If I want anything, I can get it right here, right? And so how about here and now, and John emphasizes the here and now, that the now benefits. Now, that's not to say he doesn't, doesn't talk about the benefits later, but because he's writing to a Greek audience, there's a lot of emphasis on the now. So, so those are the Gospels. And um, I mean, you know, you know, I did total justice to that in three minutes, right? Acts. Acts. You know, Acts is just so underrated. It is just so, so significant as far as, you know, the ascension of Jesus the coming of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the church. Um, it's, I think it's very valuable for Christians today because they're preaching the gospel in a, you know, we're in a kind of a post-Christian world now where a lot of the kind of norms of Christianity that, that if you're of an older generation that, you know, kind of grew up as, as understood and accepted by everyone, like everyone kind of accepted that the Bible had some authority. Everyone, every, most people knew who Moses and Abraham were. Um, most people accepted that there was a God and, 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 you know, things like that. There was an afterlife. And now there are no assumptions, right? And so that's, that's the audience they're preaching into, is a pluralistic society, lots of competing ideas, and there was very little baseline acceptance of or knowledge about Jesus. And so I think in particular as far as uh, understanding how we, have, how we share, the, share the gospel uh, you know, meaningfully and effectively in that context, that acts is very helpful. Because basically all they do is they say, Jesus rose from the dead. I saw it. That's their whole evangelism tactic. Um, but anyhow, it's, it's great. So, um, so that's the book of Acts, Formation of the Church, also written by Luke. Um, and, you know, very, his, his, a lot of, uh, it's historically very um, intensive, I should say. All right, so now we're going to move into the epistles. Epistles, again, are letters. And, you know, we have, to, we have to, when we think about the letters, we have to remember that, you know, Paul or Peter or James or, who, you know, John, whoever is writing the different letters, uh, they were writing, you know, into real-life situations. They were writing to different churches or to different people um, with, to address an issue. Or to you know to encourage them or to teach them instruct them, and so so you know for example Romans written to the church at Rome. Interesting. Some people say that Roman you know Romans was a, a fundraising letter. 
Um, uh, Paul, you know, Paul was trying to raise funds for the early church. Some people call it the first support letter ever written. <laughs> um, but anyhow, you know, Romans first 12 chapters are, are very much focused on the basic gospel and, and explaining it. You know, it, different people structure it differently, but it's basically focused on justification, which is, you know, when the initial point where a person becomes a Christian, where their sins are forgiven and they're made righteous by God and they're, you know, come into union with Christ. Um, and then sanctification, which is the process by which we grow in grace and become more like Jesus. And so that's the focus of Romans 1 through 11. Now, there is, there is some specific content that really is addressing the Jewish segment of that church. It was uh, both Gentiles, and there were both Gentiles and Jews in, in the Roman church. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Paul is, and sorry, in 9 through 11, he's, uh, the Jews were kind of like, well, what about the old covenants? And what Paul is trying to say is like, God didn't fail. Like, he didn't make a mistake. It's not like Jesus is like a substitute plan or plan B. This is the fulfillment of all those covenants. And so, um, so anyhow, uh, so clarity on Jesus, historic and eschatological implications of Christ's coming. It's, there's a lot of that in Romans 8. And yeah, so that's, that's Romans. Um, real, real popular, real good. All right, 1 Corinthians, the first two letters to the church at Corinth. Um, this is a largely Gentile community. And they had all kinds of problems. <laughs> they, um, yeah, they were um, trying their hardest, but very misguided. And, you know, some, some of the content of this is the theology of the church. Um, they were, um, what was I going to say, the, 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 this talk of the body of Christ. You see, you see that there, um, church government and leadership. There's a lot of talk about the, the sacraments, a lot of what we, a lot of the theology of, of the Eucharist and of baptism comes out of 1 Corinthians. Um, you know, there's, there is talk about the basic gospel and the, and the Christian life. Um, they were having, they had all kinds of problems with, uh, with sexual ethics in, in the, uh, in the church at Corinth, um, prostitution, you know, things of that nature. And so Paul is kind of trying to help them understand the, you know, sex reserved for marriage, the power of sex, the purpose of sex, because they, they were, they were struggling in that way. Um, second Corinthians, Paul is writing this. He says in the first, uh, second, second Corinthians chapter one, that he is despairing in life itself. Basically, he hates life. He has gone through so much at this point. And so a lot of what he is saying is your, your um, Christian witness is validated by your faithfulness in the face of suffering and persecution. You know, stay strong. There's also a lot of uh, eschatological um, content, content about heaven, the doctrine of rewards, a lot of that, that idea of like, you know, uh, you're rewarded for your good works in heaven. Um, a lot of that's in, in for Second Corinthians chapter four and five, um, and so and, and there's a lot about the gospel, a lot about the basic gospel in Second Corinthians. Um, I think Second Corinthians is a really, really good book for people who are going through a tough time. Uh, Galatians, Martin Luther's favorite favorite book. Um, a lot of people in our church their favorite book, but Galatians I talked about it before. Written to the church in Galatia. Not, not necessarily a specific church, but we know that's the you know, geographic region to which he's writing. Um, it's a church that had Jews and Gentiles, and there were, you know, there were, there was heresy in the church that again you needed to follow the dietary laws and the Sabbath rituals in addition to your faith in Christ. And Paul is saying absolutely not. Um, you know, no one is justified by works of the law. You are only justified by faith in Christ. And and there's additional content about what you know what life in the spirit looks like versus what life in the flesh looks like and so there's content on the Christian life. Um, Ephesians. Ephesians is uh, all about the church. Um, not you know from, a, from with a with a broad stroke. Um, whew, what a great book. Um, you know Paul comes into it talking about the gospel in very broad terms and in, in gospel in chapter one and God wanting to reconcile all things to himself. He moves into chapter 2, talking about salvation by grace alone, not by works that no one can burst. Then he goes on to talk about how there's no longer Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall has been broken down. All people, um, you know, there's only one identity, and that is those, those who are, are two identities. Those who are in Christ, those who are not in Christ. All who are in Christ, like, no more, no more ethnic markers and, um, and no more divisions in the church. 
and uh, and then he goes into the theology of the church, um, which is uh, it's brilliant and beautiful, and it's it's very difficult. It's hard because he is saying you know each believer is is in you know communion with God, is one with God, and since all believers are one with God, they're one with one another, and so it's this very spiritual abstract conception, but he really probably lays out the most clear theology of the church um, in the New Testament. Philippians, if you're going to throw a word to describe Philippians, it would be joy. If you're going to have a phrase, it would be joy and suffering. Paul's writing from prison. He's encouraging the Philippians. It's a very positive book. Um, no one is, it's not like Galatians where they've blown it and, or Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians where they've blown it. Um, this is very much encouragement, and Paul is saying, uh, in spite of persecution, uh, there is joy in Christ. There's lots of there's explanation on the Christian life, there's clarity on Jesus, but uh, he really does speak into the persecution and suffering that all people experience, but particularly the persecution that uh, Christians in the early church experienced. All right, Colossians. Colossians is my new favorite book. Uh, <laughs> I go through a new favorite book every three months. <laughs> That's whatever I'm studying at the time. First John is starting to take over Colossians. It's a tight battle right now. Um, but Colossians is the most Christological of, of all of the letters. It's all about the identity of who Jesus is. Uh, it's, it's largely addressing um, Gnostic thought. It's, again, a Greek philosophy that thought anything you know, physical, anything material was bad. And so, obviously, they had a... They had problems with the incarnation of Jesus. Gnostics were Gnostics were trying to borrow Christian ideas, and Christians were starting to borrow Gnostic ideas. And so Colossians is, you know, saying who Jesus is. Um, and so it's one, it's, it's brilliant and beautiful. Um, all right, first and second, first and second Thessalonians. Uh, these are two very eschatological books. A lot of stuff about the second coming of Christ. Also, these uh, the, the, the churches at Thessalonica were suffering big time. And so, um, you know, you see a lot of, of you know, a, kind of a trend where people are suffering. Um, the Bible talks a lot about, uh, the, you know, God's justice. Like things that are wrong are going to be made right. Hang in there. Persevere. And so that's largely what's going on in both both of the uh, both of the, the the letters to the Thessalonians, and also too they just they were there was a lot of confusion about um, about the second coming. Had, have we missed it? You know, <laughs> did we not get the memo? Um, and on warnings. And with that being said, because there was false teaching, a warning against false teachers. All right, First Timothy. This is now First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, or pastoral. Uh, letters. They are letters from Paul to um, pastors of churches. Timothy was in Ephesus, and um, Paul is trying to, in particular, encourage in First and Second Timothy, encourage them, um, give, give them information on how to lead a church, how to govern a church, what the leadership would look like. He is majorly emphasizing you need to preach the word. You need to preach the word, uh, and so a lot of you know, a lot of this ethos in the church of you need to teach scripture exegetically, meaning like, you know, it's not my ideas and I throw in some Bible verses to validate my ideas, but I sit down with the Bible, I teach from the Bible, and that's what drives my sermon. A lot of it is driven from First and Second Timothy, um, because that's a big part of the emphasis there. Uh, Titus, Titus is has a has a dear place in my heart. Love Titus. Um, Titus also is um, Titus is also um, explaining. Well, it's also about church government and leadership. A lot of information about the qualifications of a church leader. And then to uh, Titus two, to the end of the book, is like one of the most dazzling descriptions of the gospel and how it relates to the Christian life. Because there's this kind of back and forth dance between. All right, we need to do this, but don't forget that the you know the grace of the grace of God has appeared to all of mankind. The grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all of mankind. And then back and forth, this talk about gospel and the Christian life, gospel and the Christian life. It's brilliant. You can read Titus in 15 minutes, and it'll it'll do your heart good. 
Uh, Philemon, totally quirky book. <laughs> um, not as quirky as Second and Third John, but um, Philemon is a letter from Paul to a wealthy Christian uh, who had been converted. And one of his uh, slaves, who slavery then is, is different than it was in, in the Western world, particularly the American South. Uh, but he, there was a runaway slave, and that was a big no-no. And this slave had been converted. And Paul is writing a letter saying, hey, uh, Jesus set you free from slavery. He forgave you, and you need to treat this guy. You need to treat this guy the same way. You need to treat him with kindness. So it's a very personal, it's very short. I think it may be the shortest book. No, it's not the shortest. It's pretty darn close to the shortest book in the New Testament. You can read that one, you can read that one in about three minutes. Um, Hebrews, Hebrews, unbelievable book. We don't know the author of Hebrews. We know it's written to Jewish Christians, particularly those who are, who are struggling and suffering. Um, but there's a lot, it's very similar to Colossians in that uh, the clarification on who Jesus is. Uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is greater than angels. Okay. He's much bigger than that, but he's also trying to help them understand that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. There, there are no more, you no longer have to make sacrifices at the temple because Jesus, those were just precursors foreshadowing the ultimate atoning sacrifice in Jesus. One sacrifice of God himself for atonement of sins. There's that. And also too, Jesus is our high priest. I mean, so much of what, you know, so much of our theology of worship comes out of this book um, because it's it's helping understand. We have so much information in the Old Testament about worship uh, from the law, and so so since Hebrews is kind of connecting Old Testament or bridging New Testament, Old Testament, I should say transitioning, transitioning Old Testament worship to New Testament worship. He says, hey, there's no longer a need for the high priest because Jesus is now your high priest. He's constantly, you know, the, the high priest used to intercede for you on certain days. Jesus is interceding for you all the time, all the time before the Father. And so, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a snapshot of, of Hebrews. James, um, James also wonderful, written to Jewish Christians. James is, um, so some people say that James is a sermon. Um, and you know, it's not nearly as kind of linear and organized as uh, some of the other books of the Bible. And some people say well, that's because this was a sermon that was written down. Um, but James is kind of classified by a lot of people as wisdom literature and wisdom literature by itself is kind of black and white. It's this way or nothing for the, for the sake of effect, you know, Proverbs is that way, right? But we know, you know, the things in Proverbs aren't it's, there's a lot more gray. That's why Ecclesiastes was written. It's because there's a lot more gray. And so, um, and so James, you know, the, the verse, the hermeneutic verse of James is, these are the marks of true religion. J- people, you know, James gets in hot water and Luther's like, I don't know if we should have canonized James. But, um, but James is answering a different question than the Apostle Paul because people will say that James and Paul are at odds. When Paul was answering the question, how does a person get right with God? James is answering the question, well, how do we know if our faith is real? And James says, well, you know, intellectually believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that is not true faith. Like, true faith uh, is faith that changes your life. It's not to say we'll be perfect, but where you will kind of want to love people more. You will be convicted about your sin. You will desire to live in a more holy fashion. And so James, you know, the, the key verse is, what, are the, what is the mark of true religion? And he says, you know, to, to, to take care of the poor, um, to take care of the widows and the orphans, uh, to love people and to live a holy life. Okay, and so that's uh, that's that's James. James gets a bad rap. Um, okay, first and second Peter. I'm going to kind of go through this a little more quickly. Uh, some people call the the first Peter the book of suffering. The people the people he's writing to were just getting they were they were in such intense suffering. There was so much persecution, and James, and and Peter is uh, is writing to offer hope to people in suffering. Um, and I'm just going to kind of glop first and second Peter together. Um, anyhow, I, I, I just, I'm such a big fan of first Peter in particular. Uh, first John, uh, kind of, you know, rising to the top of my favorite books right now. We're studying it right now this summer with the high school students. Uh, it's just... So fantastic. First John is very similar to James. Uh, a, a big question is, what is the sign of authentic faith? 
And he repeatedly over and over again says, you know, uh, the repentance and the desire to live a holy life and loving people, th- those are, those are, those needed, those, you know, are marks of true faith. It's not that faith plus works equals justification. It's that true faith equals justification and works, like a changed life. Uh, again, I'm not saying we're all going to be perfect. Like, one of, the, one of the big assurances of faith is your conviction of sin. Like, if you, if you are convicted about sin in your life, that is meant to assure you that the Holy Spirit is in you and that God is changing you. That's a blessing from God. Guilt is a blessing from God. Not shame, but guilt is a blessing from God. Um, and so, um, and so, so that's a big part of First John. First John also, again, like Colossians, is addressing Gnosticism, and he's he's offering clarity on who Jesus is. Um, so, so that's First John. Second John and Third John, a little bit bizarre. Um, especially Third John. Third John is basically extending Christian hospitality to Christians is a good thing, or to, to travelers is a good thing. It's weird. It's really short. It's written to an individual. Um, there are some people who think that First John and Second John were included in the canon because First John, Second John, Third John were all included in one packet. That's what this is a speculation. I'm not saying this is you know the fact, but because you know, all right, well. First John is clearly the word of God. This is clearly from one of the apostles, and it passes the smell test. Well, Second John and Third John were by the same guy for the same purposes. Got it? You know, it fits too. Not to say that they're, you know, not to say that they are um, illegitimate or heretical or anything like that. They just, when you read them, especially Third John, you're kind of like, what's the point of this book? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? <laughs> so anyhow, just just a little thought there. All right, last, Jude is primarily a warning against false teachers. Um, it's written to a Jewish and Gentile audience, but clearly people who are familiar with the Old Testament because there's lots of references to people in the Old Testament. Um, but yeah, it's a correction of heresy in particular, warning against false teachers, explanation of the Christian life. That's only one chapter. If anybody quotes something from, from uh, you know, Jude 2, they're lying. <laughs> because there's no Jude 2. <laughs> kind of like Philemon. Yeah, I think I read that in Philemon 2. Right? <laughs> um, uh, okay. And last, and certainly not least, is Revelation. Um, Revelation, I studied it last year. It was one of the richest spiritual experiences of my life. Um, re- you know, Revelation is written to seven churches that were um, under serious persecution, uh, people were being martyred. And it was meant to give them hope that this this story has a happy ending. Think you become a Christian and people around you are getting killed for being a Christian. You're losing your job and you might get killed too. And you're kind of like, what did I sign up for? Revelation, a lot of times we think of Revelation as just, you know, this apocalyptic writing that's kind of written generically for whoever. First John is kind of written generically. Um, but Revelation is written to seven churches. It's, so it's for us, it's not necessarily to us. And so if you know the context, it's very helpful. Um, I, uh, Revelation is beautiful. I know, I know there's a lot of stuff. It's very difficult. Um, and there's a lot of fire and brimstone. There's a lot of wrath. Um, but that's, that's not all it is. Uh, and so if you can get a good commentary. Um, oh, Poitras, Vern Poitras. Uh, there's a there's a PDF of a great commentary on, on Google. If you Google Revelation commentary, Vern Poitras, uh, there is a commentary that will make P O Y T H R E S S Poitras. Yeah, P O Y T H R E S S Vern Poitras. Uh, you can get it for free. It's a PDF. It's it's fantastic. That and the study notes for the ESV Study Bible make Revelation so much more accessible. And um, there are some very difficult things in it that kind of make you tremble. Uh, but there is tons of beauty, tons of beauty in Revelation. But Revelation, again, is, is kind of pulling back the veil of what's going on in heaven, what is happening in heaven. And it's, uh, and it's also letting us know the end of the story. What is the end of the story? Uh, and that is you know, the best news ever. Jesus comes back and he makes the world perfect. We're all going to be there together. And so, um, so yeah, that is, uh, that is Revelation.
And that, my friends, is the New Testament in one hour and four minutes. Um, yay for us! Spirit fingers, right? Okay. Or happy hands. For the, that's the new thing in cheerleading is happy hands, not spirit fingers. Just for those who are trying to track it. Um, I'll, pray, I'll pray for us. If anyone has any questions, you can ask. But if you need to leave, like hit the road, Jack, you're not going to offend me. Um, I'll pray. All right, Jesus, uh, thank you that the end of this story is, a good, is good news. Thank you um, for this brilliant reality that uh, our sins can be forgiven, that we can be in, in union with you and union with Christ, communion with you. Thank you, Lord, that, um, that you live with us in the Holy Spirit. Um, thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you're a just God and the things in the world that are wrong, you will, you will make, you're going to make them right. They, you, they have not uh, escaped your, your knowledge or your awareness. And um, I thank you for the hope we have in Christ. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.